Peter Bruegel lived in the 16th century. He was born just about the time Europe was going through great turmoil as Protestants began to separate themselves from the Catholic Church, and uh, Peter Bruegel was one of the most significant artists of the Dutch and Flemish uh, Renaissance paintings as a, as a group of of paintings, they were characterized that way, but he was most famous for the painting of a work called The Blind Leading the Blind. Now, Bruegel was a, a master of observation, and in this, this painting, which I hope you can see well from where you are, pardon the pun, hope you can see well. All right, sorry. He was a master of observation. Each figure in the series of blind men leading and following the next blind man in front of him um, has a different kind of eye affliction. Uh, the men in these pictures will, they, some of them are holding their heads high to try to make better use of other senses. And there's kind of a diagonal movement uh, from the top uh, left towards the bottom right, and uh, that diagonal movement makes it look like they're kind of off kilter. And you'll also notice in the background that there is, a, there is a church in the background. Now, that church is a, is a Roman Catholic church. It was uh, called St. Anna Church. And authors or, or, or critics of paintings have noted that uh, this painting has kind of a sorrowful tone to it. And some have speculated that it may be because in the Netherlands at that time, there had just been a recent establishment of a council, what they called Council of Troubles. It was during a time period in which Spain, Spanish Catholic Spain, had invaded the Netherlands and occupied them and ordered mass arrests and executions to, to uh, further substantiate Spain's rule and suppress Protestantism in the Netherlands. And so this blind leading the blind may or may not be a political statement, but some would say it probably very well is. Now, the blind leading the blind comes from, and you've, maybe you've heard that expression before and really not really aware where it came from. It doesn't come from this painting, it actually comes from the scriptures, the scriptures in Matthew chapter 15, which we haven't read, and I'm going to steal my thunder a little bit before we even get there, but Matthew chapter 15, Jesus criticizes the Jewish establishment, and he boldly describes them as if they, either, they are blind people leading other blind people, which in the end doesn't work out very well. And what Jesus was saying is that these people were incompetent to lead because they themselves had never been truly converted to see the truthfulness of God's way in the world, God's kingdom. And they had an ambition, they had a desire for power, for significance, they wanted wealth, and they thought being a part of the Jewish religious establishment would give me everything I really wanted. Well, in the end, they were blinded to the way God works in the world. God does not work through power. He works through the smallness. The least shall be first, and the least shall be great in God's kingdom. 
God has always, throughout all time, favored the humble. He has favored the meek, those who recognize that truly they are small. And all of these parables are designed to talk to one another about the way God works in the world. And as Jesus comes to the end of these seven, He asks His disciples in verse 53, He says, in verse 52 rather, do you understand these things? And He wanted to make sure, He was very anxious that they would understand what Jesus had been saying. Now, have we gone through these seven parables very slowly over the last while? So, we've seen interposing of explanations so that the disciples aren't completely lost. And so, they've been given front row seats, and if you will, to understand what these parables mean. And I believe as I've studied through these texts, sometimes it takes a while to kind of come up to, see, to understand, okay, what, what is it that holds all of these together? I personally believe, and others may have different viewpoint, and that's okay, but I personally believe that Jesus is emphasizing how important it is to be converted, to be seeing and not blind, and how critical that is not only just for entrance into the kingdom of heaven, but also how to lead in God's world. Jesus uh, says, if you look back at verse 13 of chapter 13, uh, the disciples, after they heard that first parable about the soils, were anxious and they were concerned that Jesus was like keeping everyone in the dark. And Jesus says in verse 13, this is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see. In other words, they're blind. And hearing they do not hear. They're deaf, nor do they understand. But Jesus is concerned that His disciples would understand. And I believe that understanding is something that's gifted by the Holy Spirit, what we might call being born again. And this is a theme that runs throughout the Gospels that if you don't receive Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, then you're not going to understand the kingdom of heaven. And to understand Jesus is to grasp hold of Him, to be converted, to be born again. And the kingdom of heaven, I believe, as, as Jesus is teaching these parables, He's saying it consists only of those who are converted that the kingdom of heaven consists of only converted people. And that's the big idea, that only truly converted people belong to the kingdom of heaven. I think there is a slide there, Leah. All right. The kingdom of heaven consists of truly converted people only. Spiritual conversion is, I believe, the defining feature in the first seven Parables really teach men, women, children, and the need for personal conversion. But then the last parable, the eighth one, I believe, Jesus is focusing on the disciples and telling them that the kingdom of God needs converted pastors and teachers. 
So my plan this morning is really to pull together all seven of these parables, to walk through them together very, very briefly, just looking at each one, and so you can kind of see how it all comes together uh, and how I've come to this conclusion. So the first parable, Jesus gives an explanation. We didn't read the explanation, but that's found in verses 18 to 23. And several weeks ago, I preached that section, so I'm not going to read through all of that again. I'm just going to hopefully show you that the emphasis in Jesus talking about the sower and the seed falling on the ground, I believe, believe, I believe that Jesus is teaching His listeners that while it, there may be times where it doesn't look like there's anything happening, nevertheless, true conversion is guaranteed. Now, verse 18, Jesus says, hear then the parable of the sower. Now, many people have, through time, wanted to rename this parable. Jesus gave it a name, the parable of the sower, but the urge is strong to want to rename it the parable of the soils, because that's a variable, a variable in this story. The seed and the sower, they're the, the one thing that stays the same. And then there's a shift from like a hard soil, a rocky soil, a thorny soil, and then finally the good soil. And when I was preaching this the first time, I said, well, I'm just going to cover all the bases, and I'm going to call it the, the sower, the seed, and the soils. But Jesus here, I think we ought to not ignore His emphasis, His emphasis upon the sower, and the various soils react to the seed that the sower spreads. And I believe that this, this parable is a little story about how the seed really is affected. There's, there's outside powers that act malevolently against the seed, but then there are also good powers that are at work in this story. There's like, almost like a little bit of a hero in this parable of the seed. The seed is like, there's this conflict around whether the seed is going to sprout and take root or not. And there's that conflict is, will it germinate? Will it grow? And the struggle is whether or not the seed will survive. And finally, the seed takes off in the last soil, the good soil. Now, Jesus explains the seed that He has sown. In verse 19, He says, now this seed is the Word of God. It's the Word of the kingdom. And anyone who hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it. And Jesus is emphasizing quite simply that if they're not willing to receive the word and be converted, that seed gets plucked away, it gets, it shrivels up, it goes away. It's not the fault of the seed, it's the fault of the hearers. But that seed nevertheless is powerful. If it sprouts on good soil, it will grow and there'll be a bumper harvest. And Jesus characteristically, 
identifies the importance of understanding and receiving, and what I believe Jesus is talking about is being converted by the seed that He is sowing. Because in verse 19, He says, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away. Look at verse 20. In the other seed that was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy, yet they don't have root within themselves. So there's a hearing of the word. Now look at verse 22. As for that which was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word. Do you hear that? Hears the word. But the cares of the world keep him from truly being converted. And as for that which is sown on good soil is the one who hears the word and understands it. This is all leading towards understanding with a view of it changing you and making you something different. Just because there is an unreceptivity to the word of God does not mean that the word of God is without power. True conversion is guaranteed when the gospel lands on receptive hearts because they will understand, they will be converted, they will grow, and they will bear fruit. There is a hearing that comes first in all of this, and we know from Paul's writing that faith, that hearing comes first, and then faith comes from the hearing. And then understanding that converting work comes, and then doing or growing comes naturally after that. So I believe this is a, an exposition about how that when the gospel is received, there will be a genuine conversion take place. Now let's go to the next parable and see the parable of the weeds and how I believe that Jesus is now shifting emphases to show us that that false conversion is something that's real. And Jesus acknowledges that there is something called false conversion. And in this parable, look at verse 36. Um, verse 36, Jesus gives some explanation about this parable. He doesn't do it for all of them, but He does here say, and he the disciples come asking, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. Jesus doesn't say to the disciples, no, that's the wrong title. Um, I actually want you to use this title. So, I believe this is the title that is appropriate to this, this parable, the, the parable of the weeds of the field. And the hero in this parable is the Son of God. The Son of God is planting seeds, and He's been doing it through time. He's been doing it throughout the world. He's been doing it uh, from the very beginning and progressively showing Himself to His creation. And God has always made Himself necessary, made Himself known, and, and, and teaches people, what, what, what do I have to do in order to have a relationship with God? It may have looked a little bit different from era to era, but that very first lamb that was sacrificed to, to cover over the sins of, of Adam and Eve was a shadow of the great lamb that would come. 
that great lamb that would be hung upon the cross for the sins of the world. And God has been sowing seeds throughout time, but Satan has also been sowing seeds. He's been sowing seeds of natural religion. Natural religion, morality, looks an awful lot like true religion, but it's not. For example, I am personally delighted when I observe a video that's been created by someone like Jordan Peterson, who has been a popular life coach for a lot of young men. He has a lot of helpful, practical advice on how to get up off the couch and get going with your life. Excellent wisdom. Others have advocated going to the gym and making sure that you're there. Those are all great advice, pieces of advice. However, it can be something that's used by Satan, and a planting of a seed can come and be deposited in the heart in which a righteous pride starts to develop in one's personal accomplishments. Perhaps a young man may pursue virtue, but if he leaves off humility and refuses to be spiritually converted by the Word of God, he will one day be gathered like all the other weeds and be tossed into the fiery furnace. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, he says, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way. It holds the promise for this present life and also for the life to come. Godliness is the awareness of God and understanding that He's always there. You're converted. You see Him influencing all aspects of your life. That's what Paul's referring to. Now, there's nothing wrong with a man being a man. We need men to stand up and protect and lead. Our country may be going in an awful direction without them. But we also need men who receive the good seed of the gospel and are transformed and their lives impact spiritually this world around them. Natural religion looks a lot like Christianity, but don't be fooled. They are not the same. And this emphasis on false conversion is something that Jesus takes seriously because physical or moral reformations may look a lot like true conversion, but it is not true conversion, it's false. And because there is this mimicking quality, there is, in the end, going to be a toxicity. The, the tares that were sown, when they come to full fruit, they have a toxicity within them, And in the end, that toxicity will look a whole lot like pride and not humility. So there is definitely the possibility of false conversions. But in the next group of parables, I want us to see how the mustard seed and yeast, I believe, show us what's the evidence of a true conversion, an evidence of a true conversion. Uh, Verse 31 In verse 33, Jesus used that word took to one man took the seed, the other, the lady took the yeast in her hands 
and applied them. And in the application of the seed and the yeast, there is amazing results that occur. You know, I've mentioned in a previous sermon, how is it that a person could pick up, you know, without grasping hold of? But the reality is we can, we can kind of hold loosely and not tightly to Jesus when we hold tightly to Jesus and we allow Him to do a work within our hearts and lives, then we will be in a place where we can help other people. The pathway to flourishing and growth and change comes when we submit ourselves to Jesus Christ and pick up our cross and follow Him. We believe, we change, we allow Him to work in us. We humble ourselves. We repent and we believe the gospel. We should not be ashamed ever of the methodology that Jesus uses. Jesus uses smallness, that which is what we might see not the obvious way to go forward. But the reality is we can't help others unless we allow Jesus and the smallness of the gospel to actually affect us first. And it's the smallest of the seed that brings the greatest of the results. And then Jesus says, this, this mustard seed, it blooms, it grows to the size of a tree, and then, and then the birds of the air come and find nest inside. And in previous messages, I said that, the, that I believe this shows us how that God's sons are like a sheltering tree, those who are truly converted. The evidence will be that they're actually a shelter for others. And daughters who manifest the, the fruit of the Spirit within their hearts and lives will be a nourishing loaf to others that they'll want to come and, and eat that bread. They'll want to be fed by the relationship that you have. And anyone who lowers themselves and humbles themselves and are lowly in heart will evidence the work of the Spirit working within them. Let's move over to the treasure and the pearls, verses 44 to 46. And I see in this the nature of true conversion. Now, these are coming into our more recent memories, and so I don't have to linger as long on them. But in these two parables, verse 44 to 46, you see, I believe, a spiritual conversion taking place from different angles in which, like two sides of a coin, we see a joyful commitment of everything to acquire the field. We have the costly renunciation of, like, I, I have to sell all of my reserves in order to purchase the pearl. And in this process, the man is being, he's, he's letting go of everything he has, and he's joyfully committing himself to the gospel. The cost in this transaction is a no-brainer because the infinite value of the treasure tells the person everything that they need to do because they have eyes to see. They have ears to hear. They know that Jesus is what they've been looking for all of their lives, and they want it. They want it desperately. They give up everything else. It's a no-brainer. And a failure to humble oneself and let go of everything else will cause someone to evidence the characteristics of being a false disciple. True disciples will humble themselves and really follow Him. Now, verse 47 to 50, we're coming to newer territory, and I still am not going to spend 
a lengthy time on these. But I want us to see that the transition from a true convert, what it looks like, is then moved into the, the revelation of what a false convert will receive in their life. Verse 47 to 50, um, let's look at these verses. It says, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered every kind of fish. And when it was full, the men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into the containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The word again there shows that there is a close connection to what has been said already. And this link implies that Jesus is shifting to think through what it is, what's going to happen to someone who fails to give up their pride, and they try to hang on to the world. One day it will be revealed whether or not they were truly converted or not. And the parable, I believe, reminds us of what happens to the weeds. There's this conversation going between the, these parables. The weeds at the end of the age are harvested and also tossed into the furnace. There is an obvious duplication there. But notice that there is a fishing and also a separating. Verse 47, we just hear briefly about the method of, of the fishing, and the fishing technology hasn't really changed in hundreds and thousands of years. Uh, the technology of this kind of fishing is um, it's called seining. It's called seining. Now, I'm personally gratified because I grew up in a fishing culture, and I know exactly what this is. Uh, a seine net is a long net that's fitted with floats and with weights at the bottom. Floats at the top, weights at the bottom. And it's allowed to spread itself throughout the water. And as it's either being drugged by a boat or it's being allowed to, to, to kind of encircle a group of fish, it's picking up everything in its path. And in some cases, the, 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 the base of that weighted area gets drawn together so it forms the shape of a purse and it's saned, it's brought to the boat and pulled in gradually and the fish are taken out of the net and put into the boat and then and in this ancient culture they would separate them on shore. And in this text I believe that the ocean is a lot like Jesus' field. You might say there's lots of fish in the sea. And when God calls people to repent and believe the gospel, all kinds of people, all kinds of fish are gathered. But not all who gather or assemble are truly converted. There is ultimately going to be a separation, and that's what Jesus refers to in verses 48 to 50. There will be this great separating at the end of the age. Back on shore, the good fish, the ones that they were out for, the ones they were looking for, are put into containers for market, and the bad ones are tossed out. Now, that word bad in the original is a word that's used for rotting. They're stinking. Uh, fish and neighbors, after three days, begin to stink, and they smell to high heavens. And there will be a separating. And the pride 
that stinks to high heavens will be rooted out. Hardness of heart, the love for the cares of the world, those things which keep people from the presence of God, at the end of the age it will be revealed whether they are truly converted or not. And instead, they will be thrown into a fiery furnace. Now that is a entered scripture metaphor speaking of the days of Daniel and the fiery furnace that was heated seven times. And it's a reference and a metaphor to the fire of God's wrath in a future place called hell. And a future separation is actually, in this text, what gives us the urgency in our present responsibilities. We need to be Christians. We can't make ourselves Christians, but if the gospel has penetrated our hearts, we will be Christians. And the true believer who hears this is going to feel like the sense of fear and warning but they will also not stay there. They will look to the cross and realize the ultimate punishment has been already provided for us. There is a sense in which the, the power of God is, as a consuming fire is very real, but the Son of God has already gone through the flames so that we don't have to. It should give us, though, a seriousness about our faith and recognize that grace is not cheap. It was costly. And a serious kind of faith, one that has been, tr there's true conversion taking place, there's in the Beatitudes, as I've mentioned before, this sensitivity towards our own sinfulness. There will be this awareness that we have a poverty of holiness, that we are truly sinners. There will be a meekness and a thirst and hunger for righteousness. But that's only halfway. It does us no good just to sit there and, and wallow and, and kind of like hit the, hit the repeat pattern. Oh, I, I did the sin, and I, okay, now I'm like going back again, and I get this guilt. That's only halfway through the Beatitudes. The other half of the Beatitudes show us that we go on to be peacemakers. We actually start living out a Christian life. We go on to be peacemakers, to be merciful, to have a purity of heart, and be willing to endure persecution for His namesake. It's not enough to recognize that we are nothing. We've got to go on and seek to be Christians. And as Christians, if we believe that we are grasping hold of Jesus and that He is the treasure that's worth having and taking, getting rid of everything else in the world, it will move us and change us to become like Him over time. We will mature. We will become like little sons of the kingdom. We will become like Christ over time. We will not be perfect in this age, but we will be perfected when we enter into the kingdom of heaven. There will only be righteous people in His kingdom. Now, we've gone through the first seven, and I hope, I hope I've at least argued a good case for Jesus' emphasis, the center for parables speaking of the evidence and the nature of conversion. And I pray that that's, that's something that you see for yourself and 
perhaps even are aware that you, if you've not been converted, if you've not put your faith and trust in Jesus, that you would be willing to do so, that you would leave the things of this world and embrace Him alone. Jesus is very concerned. He wants to make sure that His disciples, the first, the first to go out after the resurrection, after Pentecost, are truly converted. He wants to make sure that those who are leading His new body, His new church, would be converted themselves. And so, in verse 51, um, Jesus says, have you understood all these things? Have they impacted you in such a way that you will now be able to, to teach others? Or, and Jesus says, they say to Him, yes, and I'm not sure how much they fully grasped at this point, but Jesus says to him that, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven, in other words, if the kingdom of heaven and the gospel is going to do a work in you, it's going to train you for godliness, you'll be in a place where you can then help others. But you've got to be converted by faith in Jesus Christ. He is the treasure. Out of His treasure, He pulls out things which are both old and new. They'll be like a scholar. Out of the converted heart, soul, and mind, he will put before his listeners old truths, but they'll be done with a vividness because they have made an impact in their hearts and lives. The word new there is talking not new in time of sequence. It's actually a, a word, a Greek word that means fresh. There's a fresh quality. And Jesus knew that there would be a danger to an unconverted ministry. Uh, throughout the ages of church history, there have been seasons and periods of time in which the clergy themselves have abandoned the truth of the gospel and have served the church themselves being unconverted. Prior to the 17. 76 revolution that we, we hold dear in our hearts, there was concern in the 30 years prior that many of the pulpits had within them people who were dead themselves, that there were unconverted people who were talking about the truths of Scripture, but there was not a life within them that, that demonstrated that they were born again. Now, William Tennant was a preacher during that era, and he preached a very provocative sermon. He was from actually uh, Warminster area here in Pennsylvania, mid-state colonies, mid-colonies, mid and he preached this sermon. He said he preached it, and it was a very provocative title, and it angered a lot of people. It was the danger of an unconverted ministry, and you can imagine that, that would really rile people up, especially the pastors in the colonies. And actually, what it did, it created a shock to, to, to listeners to realize, wait a second, the guy in the pulpit might not even be converted? It caused a lot of stress in the colonies. In fact, I think it was a, a flame which fueled the Great Awakening. The Great Awakening. And I believe today, here in America, we are under the same problem. We have many, I believe, unconverted ministers who are leading many people to hell. There are many, even denominational churches, who have, not, not all denominational churches, 
but there are many within the higher organizations that are unconverted and they're leading people to hell. It is incredibly important to have a converted minister in the pulpit because there is a power there for the gospel to transform hearts and lives. I don't do it on the basis of my personality. That's not what does it. It's the Word of God making a difference in my own heart and also making a difference in your heart as it's being preached. That's what's important. Blind people have a hard time walking in darkness. You can add a little light. You can turn up the light in the room. But does that help them see any better? Oh, give them glasses so that they might see. If you're blind, that's not going to help you either. What they need is seeing eyes. Spiritually blind people need to be converted. They need their eyes open so that they can see the glories of the pearl, the glories of the treasure, and true conversion involves a movement of the heart to close with Christ and, like, put away everything else, sell everything, to gain what you've always been looking but you could never find. And as you learn that the smallest, the smallness of Jesus is what you've been looking for, it's only then that you're really going to be able to help other people. You'll be able to be a peacemaker, you'll be able to be merciful, you'll have purity in heart that will develop over time, and then you'll persevere when trials come. If you don't receive the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, then you cannot understand even this conversation here this morning. It won't make sense to you. To understand Jesus is to be born again, is to be converted. At the end of the age, when the angels come and Christ's kingdom is finally here, it will only consist of truly converted people only. And so it's with, with a desire for you to see that I close the service in prayer. Let's pray.